A man and his crew are hired for the first time to cut a farmer's wheat or corn, you know, Kansas, Nebraska, whichever you want. This is a custom cutting crew, imagine, and they travel from south to north, start in Texas, go all the way up to Canada every year cutting wheat throughout the summer. One morning, the owner of the custom cutter operation is walking through an uncut field and he sees something very unusual. He goes over, he digs it up, discovers it is unbelievable treasure. Quickly, he runs to another part of the field, an inconspicuous place, and buries the treasure again where no one will see it. After they finish cutting the owner's wheat, the custom cutter calls off the rest of the season. He quits. He drives home as quickly as he can and sells off all of his farming equipment. He doesn't tell anyone what he's up to, doesn't want the farmer to suspect anything, so he tells no one his plan, but his combines, his wheat trucks, the grain carts, the semis, all of it he sells. He takes the cash and go and buys that field where the treasure is hidden. What would the man have found to make him want to put all of his resources, everything he owned in his whole life, in order to acquire it? What would you need to discover in order for you to be willing to give everything you own to have it? My home church had a lot of adult Sunday school classes, one for each age range. You know, people in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, their 60s, their 70s, their 80s, they each had a class. And in the hallways of the church, the names of the classes were displayed with a sign that stuck out from the wall. And one of them on the first floor that I walked past all the time said on it, TNT, the TNT class. Now, whenever I saw that growing up, I thought that they had named their class after dynamite. <laughs> and somehow, as a kid, it never occurred to me that that would be odd. <laughs> to name your Sunday school class after something that blows up. I would guess that the members of that class, they named the class that when they were young and married, probably sometime in the 1940s, and the name just stuck. Now, about 10 years ago, long after I had left that church, I was having a conversation with my mother, and I learned that TNT actually stood for Think New Thoughts. That was the name of their Sunday school class, Think New Thoughts, TNT. Well, I think about that old TNT class, all of whom have since gone on to glory. I think about them when I read Jesus' parables, because that's exactly what he's trying to get us to do. Think new thoughts. He uses imagery that's easy to understand, but he tells stories that are maddeningly short. I mean, when I started the sermon by retelling that parable of the hidden treasure, in a more modern context, I used about five times as many words as Jesus did. I gave you more detail, a fuller picture than the story we find in the Gospel of Matthew, and I still left a whole lot of things unexplored and unexplained. Now, why were his parables so short? It's because they were meant to be conversation starters, not conversation enders. Jesus told parables to get us, to get people thinking new thoughts and asking new questions and wondering new things about God and God's ways. Writer, theologian, C.H. Dodd, he gives this definition of a parable. 
At its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. Leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application. Is that what you come to worship for? Do you come to have sufficient doubt about the precise application of my sermon today? Or would you rather that I told you exactly what to do in completely clear terms? Would you like me to lay out a, a strict list of do's and don'ts? Give you some kind of hardcore shalls and shall nots? Lay out a bunch of yeses and noes so you don't have to even think for a minute for yourself. You can just put away any pesky questions. You, you, you don't have to have any doubts. You can remove all active thought. You can just, just stop working things out for yourself in your own life, okay? Just listen to what I have to say and go home and do it. That's what we're doing here, right? Right? No? No. No, no. No, 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 not a chance. Not only do I have no desire to tell you exactly what to do and how to do it in your life, I know if I got that bossy, you wouldn't listen to me anyway. <laughs> no, 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 what we're doing here is something different. We're reflecting on life and faith together. And I say some things, and I mean for them to inform you and inspire you and maybe even challenge or provoke you. And then you and the Holy Spirit are in charge of the rest. So it's good, actually it's great, that we have stories like this from Jesus, parables whose meaning is not 100% clear. It's great that we have these short stories that are meant to be conversation starters because that's what we want from our teaching anyway. We want to be provoked. We want to be challenged. We want to be intrigued. And then we want space and time to figure out what that means for our lives, for our relationship with God for our faith. See, Jesus, he wasn't interested in automatons, people who would just take notes on everything he said and then go about blindly doing that. If he had wanted that, he would not have taught in parables. And he taught using a lot of parables. Not exclusively. Of course, we have things like the Sermon on the Mount that's much more straightforward. But Jesus told a lot of parables as a way to help us know who he was, what he was about, what he, how he wanted us to live as people of God. In the Gospel of Matthew alone, we have 17 different parables, more than any other gospel. Now, we're exploring some of these in our series, The Storyteller, from now through Easter. But Pastor Bellarmi and I, we're not even going to cover all the parables in Matthew. There are just too many of them. So parables, they were not an occasional thing for Jesus. He taught in parables. They were central to his way of engaging with people. Okay, back to the parables for the day. A plowman who sells everything he owns to buy a field with treasure inside of it. And a merchant who goes searching for the most beautiful pearl in the world, and when he finds it, he sells everything else to purchase that pearl of great price. Now both of these people, they are single-minded in their focus. Both of them discover something they know is worth more than anything else in the world, but what is it that they find? The merchant, he knows what he's looking for. 
right? He's diligently searching and he finds it. The plowman, though he's just doing his regular job and he finds the treasure by accident. So whatever this thing is, it can be encountered on purpose or by surprise. The merchant, he pays what it's worth for the thing he finds. Everyone seems to know about this transaction, but the plowman, he does not tell the owner of the field what he's found. He keeps it a secret, and then he buys the field so he can have the treasure. Was that ethical? Or is it okay to bend the rules just a little, to be a little shady, to get this thing that is the great treasure? What would be worth so much that you would sell everything you own in order to attain it? I don't guess that Jesus is expecting us to think of stuff. The treasure, it it can't be a giant house or a fancy car or jewels, even though he uses this image of a pearl. Because Jesus says elsewhere... Beware of hoarding up treasure on earth where moth and rust consume and thieves break in and steal. So Jesus has something else besides material possessions in mind with these stories. And he says at the end of both of the stories, after telling of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price, he says the kingdom of heaven is like this. These are stories trying to help us understand what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is. Now, last week, I listened to a couple of episodes of the podcast Criminal. If you're a fan of podcasts like I am, and you don't already have Criminal in your feed, I encourage you to to subscribe. It's true crime, but it is not like Dateline or something. Like, it's not all dramatic. Instead, it's just beautiful storytelling. It just happens to be about things that are illegal. So... (laughs) The episodes that I heard last week, they were the story of a man who was arrested for murder at age 17. He was convicted. He was sentenced to life in prison. The only problem is he was actually in jail being processed for a street fight at the exact time the murders occurred. He didn't get released until two hours after the crime had been committed. It was impossible for him to have been involved. But the Chicago police in the early 90s, they ignored their own paperwork and they pushed to get a conviction and he spent 20 years in prison before he was finally exonerated. I wonder if we asked him, what would be so valuable that you would give away everything you owned? I wonder if he would say freedom, freedom. Or yesterday, I listened to a funeral that happened in Wichita, a funeral of a man that I have known since I was in high school. He died suddenly in his bed at age 62. Now, both on social media and and during the funeral, there was this outpouring of love and gratitude for the role that Thane had played in people's lives. He was a youth director. He was heavily involved uh, as a volunteer at Boys State. He was essential to the Wichita Film Festival. He was a leadership guru. He was a mentor to dozens and dozens of youth over the years. He was a friend. He was a coworker. He was a leader. He was a light to so many people. His funeral was so beautiful. I hope that he knew something about the way that he impacted lives and helped people feel valued and loved. But I wonder if we could ask Thane now knowing that his life was going to be cut short. 
I wonder what he would tell us was worth the very most. What would he say was most valuable? Relationships with other people? Supporting young people and helping them find their way? One of his coworkers said at the funeral that he would keep a bell on his desk, like one of those that you see at a hotel that you ding. And every time somebody had an aha or a breakthrough or a success of some kind, he would ring the bell so that everybody could celebrate. Maybe he would say joy was the thing that mattered most. What is worth so much that you would be willing to sell everything you own in order to attain it? Jesus is suggesting to us that the kingdom of God is the most valuable thing there is. The kingdom of God or the reign of God was absolutely central to Jesus' message in the world. Now, he didn't invent it. We can find passages in the Old Testament that talk about God's reign and God's rule over the world, how God will usher in an era of justice and peace. It's a reminder to us that God doesn't just save us as individuals. God wants to redeem the whole world all of creation. Now Jesus makes clear that, that we can't usher in God's kingdom. It's something God's gonna have to do and it will be done in God's timing and not a minute before. And also not everybody gets to hang out in God's kingdom. Our last parable of today makes that clear. At some point in the future there's gonna be a sorting. Remember Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a huge net that catches all kinds of fish and eventually the fisherman has to throw out the bad fish and keep the good. So God's kingdom is not going to have space for people who want to cling to their habits that are unholy. People who are unrepentant liars or people who are cheats and won't make amends or people who harm others and refuse to ask for forgiveness. God is not going to stand for their mess in the kingdom. Now, we probably don't resonate with the idea of kings and kingdoms quite as much as hearers in the first century would have. Kings and kingdoms, they were about the only kind of government that people then knew. Even Rome, they had a senate, but they also had an emperor. Now, last week, many of you know, I was in Brunfels, Germany for a church meeting. And the one thing besides sitting in the meeting that we got to do was tour the castle. I cannot tell you very much about that castle. I might not have paid rapt attention during the tour. So I don't know who built the castle or what he and his family were kings or princes of because honestly, I just couldn't get into it. Right? He was rich. He had a big house, a house I would never want to live in. All right. So kings, princes, whatever, it's not the most exciting thing for me. But of course, God's kingdom is not going to be like any human kingdom. It's going to be the place where God's values are on full display. It's going to be the place where God's will is done fully. The place where God's peace and God's joy and God's freedom and God's love reign supreme. It is going to be God saving the whole world. In our stories today, if you look back in the scripture, you'll see that Matthew actually uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like... And he only uses that because as a faithful Jew, he doesn't want to say the word God or get anywhere close to using the name of God. So it's an act of reverence or respect. He's not talking about God's kingdom being off in heaven far away. He means heaven come to earth. He means like we say in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Important to remember, too, that the kingdom of God is not an experience just of the heart. Okay, it's not something that's locked away inside of us and it's about how we feel or believe. The kingdom of God is about real, tangible activity in the world, things we can see and touch. It's about God bringing peace and justice and abundance and joy into the world in concrete ways. The kingdom of God is an actual transformation of the world. Now, it's not here yet, but Jesus tells us it is near. He says the kingdom is near, and we can see glimpses of it, and we can catch moments of it, and we can live like we're citizens of it, even while we're waiting for it, hoping for it, praying for it. And Jesus says it is the most valuable thing in the whole world, and he never tells us exactly, clearly, plainly what it is. He only tells us what it's like. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had to buy it. What is worth so much that you would be willing to sell everything you own in order to attain it? Is that something you would name as a part of the kingdom of God? Is it something that God will bring when God's values and God's love finally rule the world in a complete way? Now, I don't know just what it is that might be resonating in your heart today as that pearl of great price. But whatever it is, my question is, what are you doing today to invest in that thing? How are you shaping your life so that thing is, in fact, your most treasured possession? May God help us all this week continue searching, seeking, finding, and rejoicing whenever we find that the kingdom of heaven is near. Amen.